Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Heated and Loaded. I'm Banks over here in North Carolina. Davis, you're up in the DMV market. How are you doing tonight? Doing okay in the DMV market. Uh, whilst in the DMV market, I'm repping our World Series champion Washington Nationals tonight, uh, celebrating the fact that the Nats and all of baseball might be back on July 4th. What a way to ring in Independence Day. I am fired up, sir. Fired up. Couldn't tell. I love the energy across the Zoom call and our podcast tonight. And yeah, that was certainly awesome to hear just that there might be some sports coming back and uh, not really normal way, but it's still baseball. It's still sports. So we'll take any way we can get it. I am thrilled. I'm thrilled. It's also notable that this is our second consecutive podcast with the same name. We are on, it's a hot streak for us. We have not had to change our podcast name again. So heated and loaded buckle up everybody. Some people said we couldn't have a show, and then they even said after that that we couldn't have two consecutive episodes. Well, we really showed them, and I'm excited for episode three being tonight and uh, appropriate timing because we are uh, on the part of the last dance, which we'll go into in a bit, where he was wrapping up year three and then completely exhausted at the end of it, and I'm starting to feel that way. I don't know about you, Davis. Maybe we should go to Birmingham and uh, maybe take a year off from this and come back even stronger. What do you think? 21 months, man. I think we could do it. Uh, you know, I, th- I know some people down there that own a bookstore. I think we could go hang out and sling books and, um, you know, have a nice time. We don't do free ads quite yet. Um, we're not there as no. a podcast, so uh, we will not name Sid Bookstore, but shout out to our friends in Birmingham. We're excited for your business opening up and maybe we can partner at some point, but particularly maybe that's in the Crestwood, the Crestwood neighborhood of Birmingham. <laughs> wink, wink. Uh, yeah. Look, at the same time, I love Birmingham. That's a lot of time to be at the Hoover Met. I don't know if I could do that personally. So have at it, Davis, if that's something you want to do. But let's dive into it. We have a few topics we want to talk about tonight. Just to give you a quick rundown, we'll say this in the title. Last Dance, of course, Episode 7 and 8. And then we're going to dive a little bit into uh, some other topics related to recent news. The NFL schedules just came out. Pretty exciting. We'll talk through that in a second. And then our friend R.J. Mars will come on and talk about our top three favorite uniform combinations in the 90s across all sports. So very much a heated podcast tonight, and we are loaded with content. Really excited about that transition. Davis, let's talk about the last dance. We had so many takeaways from what I argue as maybe the two best episodes in this series, Uh, specifically zooming in, not about Jerry Krause and some other things around it, but really more about Jordan's drive and the way he approached the game, and it was at a level that no one else can maybe even match or surpass. What did you think about that? Yeah, I, I mean, echo what you said, best two episodes by far. Um, we got to see a lot about Jordan, um, you know, struggling at the end of his, you know, first three-peat, moving to, um, moving to Birmingham, but then coming back and trying to deal with that, trying to deal with not being at the, at the mountaintop again. Uh, I think we saw, you know, tempers flare and Jordan told the story uh, about uh, punching Steve Kerr in the face, which I thought was pretty incredible and getting thrown out of practice for it. And then another thing about it too, was right after that, he said he felt so small because he picked on the smallest guy on the team. And I think that, you know, anybody that says Michael Jordan is an asshole, which is a very common theme. Like we've heard that for years, Michael Jordan's an asshole, Mm -hmm. but uh I think that shows that Michael Jordan's not an asshole. I think he's very aware of, of what he's after and, and the things he's looking for in teammates. And, and I think that this episode and, or these episodes really, really explored that in a fascinating way. If you're a jerk, you're going to be a jerk for no real reason behind it other than maybe you have your own personal problems or there's something else going on that maybe drove you to those actions. Michael Jordan, everything he did 
had a purpose to it. And it was really all about on-court pieces uh, related to trying to win championships that really drove that, that kind of action step. So uh, the, the people out there said he was an asshole, he's a jerk to his teammates. He was trying to tough him up. I mean, Scott Barella and, and some of those pieces there, he was all about just trying to get him to a certain level because on his own, he would not be driven that way. I, I told you this earlier in our conversation. It reminded me of Whiplash when uh, J.K. Simmons' character was really aggressive about making sure that character uh, really met, met his uh, potential and, his, and maximized his uh, efforts there. And I think Michael Jordan was doing that with his own teammates in a way that um, he was kind of the bad cop and, and Phil Jackson and some other people around him had to kind of be the good cop uh, to counter those kind of actions. Yeah, I mean, I think that nail on the head there is, is him trying to get the most out of his teammates. You know, Michael Jordan, whether he was right or wrong, I mean, he with his approach, the results speak for themselves. I mean, he was successful in motivating these people to play at what he viewed to be their maximum or maximum ability or at their maximum ability. And he wasn't doing this on his own, right? He was simply, uh, yeah, sure. He might've been a jerk. He might've pushed people, but he did everything he asked of others. He was doing himself, which Absolutely. I think is a key differentiator from being an asshole to just a hard, aggressive teammate. And probably even different, but from JK Simmons character on whiplash. Correct. Maybe but, but yeah, but I mean, I think, but I think whiplash is a fair comparison. I just, you know, and, and we talked about this again, another thing, you know, great radio here uh, when we're sitting here telling you about conversations we've had off the air, but uh, you know, Jordan, Jordan showed in this episode about, you know, his emotion, you know, like how, how, how much it meant to him to win and, and not just, how much it meant to him to win, but how, how much it hurt him that other people didn't understand the way that how badly he wanted to win. Yeah. You know, and I, I think that was super interesting. You know, it was, it showed his loneliness in that, in that pursuit. And, and honestly, you know, if we're going to get pretty a little uh, deep on this. Like that type of excellence is, has to be a lonely experience, you know, like this, it's not something that you can really share with other people because oftentimes they're unable to even like comprehend the level of commitment that you have to this thing. And I, I thought it's incredibly revealing and, and pretty awesome moment to watch Jordan talk about it. He's lonely in a sense of his greatness, but he's not a guy who's, you know, antisocial. He's not capable of mm-hmm. mixing with others and being a teammate. In all of these interactions, you see that he is constantly connecting with others that maybe some other examples or comparisons of other athletes in a similar dynamic where it created some tension mainly because, he thought he was above everyone else and didn't want to even try to make that connection. MJ was different in that way. I think he certainly had an athletic ability that was above everyone else's. His drive was above all other people around him too. And he just wanted people to get on his level as much as they possibly could, knowing some of their limitations. Steve Kerr's not going to have a 50 inch vertical, for example. Uh, Whittington's not going to be able to, <laughs> to do anything uh, noteworthy uh, along the lines of a Shaquille O'Neal, but he knew if he could get them to be maybe 100% of their potential, that's still better than what it could have been in, in the other option. Yeah, and I th- exactly right, Banks. And I think that you know, that's what I mean by this. And I think that's what Jordan was trying to – was saying in the interview portions of this was, like, he was upset that people viewed him as an asshole. I don't think that he he ever really saw it as him being a jerk. I think, he, like you said, I think he saw himself as a motivator and someone who maybe at times had to use fear as a motivator intimidation as a motivator but he thought he was doing something good for those people you know and i i really think that that's why this episode or these episodes were the best of the series so far and it's a different era too 
we're not talking 2020 NBA where, you know, there are a lot of sensitive players that have been more vocal about, you know, taking games off or load management. You know, this is a different era for everyone. And, and part of that difference was the ability that you could drive at certain people and, and have that kind of uh, demand from your teammates in a way that um, you, you felt locked in. There wasn't this kind of one foot out the door mentality with free agency like you see now. It was really more about we're, we have to be a team. We have to work together. Let's figure this out. And we have an 82-game stretch or whatever to make that happen. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you, you said it whenever you talked about free agency. These guys now can in the NBA, you know, and this isn't like a, you know, oh, well, you know, back in our day, the NBA was better. I mean, that's not what this is. But the, the guys now, it's just it's a player, empower, player empowerment era. You know, these guys can demand trades or or just walk out on contracts basically is what it turns into yeah. just because they don't like their team or they don't think that they're going to be as good as they should have been. Michael Jordan sat down and said, this is my team. These are the guys I have. And in 95, when he came back, it wasn't a particularly good team. And, but he still showed up every day and wasn't bitching about it. He just went out there, tried to motivate his teammates so that they could potentially win. And they didn't win in 95, but they won in 96 and it paid off. And I think that is exactly right banks that this is an entirely different error than it would be now i mean that's just not how this would have happened you know lebron james would have bailed just like he did in 2000 after the 2017 finals i mean like it's just the way it is now let's make it clear we are a anti-lebron james podcast i think that's probably (laughs) uh, if it's not already obvious it's definitely heading that direction and we want to be clear i don't know that i'm anti-lebron james i just don't particularly care for him i i i would like to clarify that um i i do think that that he's a phenomenal player. And I just think that the way he's handled some of these situations have been a little bit uh, underwhelming. When I just, you, you, you compare this to Michael Jordan, which is what everyone is doing right now because there's nothing else to talk about. But Michael Jordan is, has demonstrated why everyone thinks that he was the best. You know, it's, it's his approach. It's his personality. He's not living on Twitter and on Instagram talking about how tough he is because we are in the fake tough era. And I, you know, I, it's not that Mike, that LeBron James sucks or that we hate him. Just he's not Michael Jordan. And I think that this is, it's becoming more and more clear to a new generation of people, a new generation of NBA fans. And you're starting to see a little bit of that person from that era and what he is today and some of his tactics versus say a modern day NBA player. Michael Jordan worked his ass off, but he wasn't vocal about how hard he worked. He let the game speak for itself. And then he would not, even in present day, he's not online on Twitter spouting about this or that. And he certainly wouldn't be on there saying on that grind at 5.30 a.m. when he's doing a workout. He would just do the work and let the play on the court do the talking. And he would talk on the court, but he would leave it there. He would never um, go about maybe, again, we're going back in LeBron or some other players that are filling themselves like a certain podcast of this week, you know, filming for five minutes doing a workout and then, you know, back on uh, just doing whatever they're doing, uh, kind of being lazy outside of the fact that it's not being filmed. MJ worked so hard, was tenacious about the craft and really, again, like I said, reinforced that by his ability to uh, translate that to on the court versus uh, trying to make sure his image looked a certain way from a NBA perspective. Absolutely. And he did not need to create a new persona like Hoodie Mello, you know, to like demonstrate how hard he was working. So, I mean, you're, you're exactly right. So we, we didn't really hit on this a whole lot yet, but the big pivotal part of the beginning of episode seven was the fact that his dad, unfortunately, was killed here in North Carolina and kind of the fallout from that and a lot of the rumors surrounding it. I'm really glad 
just finally, maybe we get some sourcing from MJ himself. He's finally open about that as well as, you know, David Stern, the late, great David Stern speaking out more about, Hey man, let's be real. Let's be honest here. Like there's no way, given the fact that we're capitalists, given the fact that um, Michael Jordan was at the top of his game, we would never have gone about maybe suspending him for potentially gambling issues off the court. This was simply a, baseball decision and a basketball decision at that time to look for something else in his life personally. What did you think about kind of that take there? Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's, that's good. I mean, I think that Jordan was shaken. I mean, I think it sounds like he was worn out from basketball, like just emotionally spent from basketball, combine that with the death of his father. Mm -hmm. Um, And also what we talked about last week with the, with the press and the media and the way that they had been covering him and, and been pretty tough on him. But I think baseball was a respite for him. I mean, it was an opportunity for him to like go and pursue something he genuinely cared about and thought that would mean a lot to his dad. Um, and, and you're right. I mean, I just don't know that we can understate the importance of his dad's death. You know, I, I've my, luckily, you know, I have both of my parents and you do too, but it, it's, it's, um, I can't imagine, you know, and particularly someone as close to his dad as he was. I mean, his dad was there with him all the time in Chicago during you know, basically his entire career. So you know, it's cool to, to get past this, like he, he was cause he was gambling or whatever, you know, which is a fun like conspiracy theory, <laughs> but at the end, you know, it's a guy who was just tired, you know, tired of doing this thing that he'd done really, really well and expended a ton of energy on for a really long time. He had nothing left to give the NBA at that point in time. He needed to recharge, whether that was through baseball or just sitting back for a year or two. He, he chose this path, but I think the point remains the same that, he just needed to try something different after grinding so hard at Chicago. I don't think people realize the Bulls weren't just ready-made. He had to, and they probably have figured out after watching the documentary, how bad the Bulls were at the beginning and how isolated, going back to that point, he felt driving that franchise to respectability and then by himself getting it to where it was a three-peed and then beyond that after the fact. Um, that was a very tough 10-plus years for him, and, he finally hit his breaking point and he decided baseball was the path. And I think, uh, you know, another great point mentioned in this documentary, it was just the fact that he was really improving as a baseball player. We didn't really get a true chance to see his greatness in baseball because he didn't see that through all the way. Maybe he needed another year to develop. He went from 17 to 31 without playing baseball. And he picked up a bat and he had a 13 game hitting streak. That's absurd in double a ball, which is not, entry-level ball by any means. It's it's kind of, you know, present day where a lot of pitchers and catchers and certain uh, positions go um, from college straight to the, the minor leagues. They don't maybe get a single A anymore, but it's it's pretty high-level baseball. And he did that just because of his athletic ability and his hand-eye coordination, uh, did some things that most could never achieve in their lifetime. You know, I think that's a huge – and that's a big thing that's different for me watching this now is, you know, what we what I remember about Jordan playing baseball was, you know, Michael Jordan sucked at baseball. Like, that was the thing. You know, couldn't hit. Couldn't hit a curveball. Couldn't hit a curveball, which they talk about. But, I, you know, that's what I remember about Jordan going to play baseball. Yeah. Like, what did – I mean, what was that about – what was that like for you? I mean, we were nine or ten years old. I mean, I, we were both baseball fans too. So, like, right. what do you remember about Jordan going and playing baseball? I remember specifically being a big baseball guy. I think we all were growing up in the South. We had access to two of 10 channels, I guess, at that point in time, WGN and TBS. So we were watching Cubs and Braves baseball all the time, right? Baseball was a big part of our summertime as it was, and, and MJ was certainly a big part of our particular 
um, maybe sports fandom or even just general sense of what the world was like. He was a big part of it. Seeing him go to baseball, it was interesting because we were both around the same age, Davis. It was that point where we started to understand kind of sports center and the landscape that was, you know, pro sports in general. And all we knew was Michael Jordan in our lifetime was a staple in NBA basketball. And to see him switch to baseball like that, we didn't really have an example of like, is this right or wrong? It just felt different. And it's always one of those moments you remember where you were when you saw that press conference, seeing that replay just conjured up a lot of memories for me when it was appointment viewing to watch sports center every morning as a kid and, and reliving some of that and seeing his approach to double a ball uh, actually living in a market where we had a double a team ourselves. I don't believe he ever came to Jackson, but uh, we, we had a sense of, you know, what that environment would be like and, and in Jackson with the generals. And I think, you know, Birmingham was a good experiment for him. And um, it didn't pan out from like him actually making the majors, but I don't think it was a failure by any means. I think it was actually the takeaway was he gave it a shot and he did a pretty decent job at it. And I think he accomplished what he wanted to was, which was to recharge, really reconnect with the sport that his dad and him loved and shared. And then uh, from there, he kind of parlayed that into his next phase of his life, which I don't even think there was even a comparison at that point in time to a career where he needed to play 10 years to prove himself. He had won three championships. What else did he need to do on the court at that point in time um, to even um, further establish his legacy? I think at that point in time, you could say he was the greatest player in the world, and that was it. It wasn't even like a Barry Sanders comparison where you felt like it was too short in some ways. You felt like he kind of fulfilled his promise. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's right. That's really interesting. I, I remember Jordan playing baseball and sucking, and, and that's that's not correct. But that's that's the thing that I remember about it, you know. And, and they talk about it too with some of the articles that were written about him while he was while he was playing there. Yeah. Um, I, and, but it was also I just remember it being jarring, you know. Like it's it was so strange to see Michael Jordan and you know the Barons black and white, you know. <laughs> it didn't make a lot of sense to me. I, I also remember being confused. I mean, I knew what minor league baseball was, but I was very confused why they were the White Sox. Like, I, like I, I don't know. Something about that didn't really work for me when I was, like, nine years old. Maybe I wasn't as good of a baseball fan as I am now. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I – I, the other thing I think of when I think of Jordan with the uh, – with baseball was Space Jam. Um, yeah, very good. Yeah, Space Jam, a cultural touchstone for any – kid about our, you know, anybody in their early thirties, late twenties, maybe even older. Um, I like, I, yeah, eh, I don't know about entirely, but yeah, in our, in our cohort for sure. But they, uh, I just remember Michael Jordan going and having Daffy Duck and, and, and Bugs Bunny come and rescue him from Birmingham, Alabama and pull him into whatever cartoon land. So he could play Monstars. But like that's the thing I associate with, and and they talk about that in the in the documentary this week too. Um, how crazy was that that they built him an entire facility on MGM property, so he could continue to practice whenever he wasn't filming? We were so aware of the '92 Dream Team practices. Why were we just now apprised <laughs> of the fact that this, like you know, unique like uh, I don't even know how to describe it. Almost like this portable basketball court globe little encompassing uh battle the jordan dome the jordan, jordan dome right um how was this the first time we were really aware of the fact that Jawan howard and reggie miller and all these dudes flocked to la for that 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 looked like such an amazing watch and i wish i, I found out looked into it there's not much more film than what you saw uh, on the documentary of it but 
That's insane. It's probably what you see now. Of course, everyone goes to LA in the summertime and plays at Lifetime Fitness and does the pickup thing with you know different people of different generations. But like that was kind of the beginning of it. Yeah, it was like the Drew League. You know, it was incredible <laughs> to see those dudes all playing. Yeah, um, exactly. And and you know, of course, Michael Jordan would start the fad of every player living in LA now in the offseason. So yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm shocked that Birmingham didn't become that fulcrum of NBA basketball uh, playing in the offseason. And they were so close, you know. Mm-hmm. They were so it close. Really was. Only if he had stuck around a little bit longer. <laughs> then our friends in, with the bookstore might um, might be a little bit more profitable. They might be. Yeah, it's amazing all the greats that have come through Hoover um, and specifically the Hoover Met. Tim Tebow's ESPN game in high school played at the Hoover Met. We've mentioned two days way too much for a podcast that's only had three episodes. Uh, two a days, of course, filmed there. And then, you know, all the great SEC baseball tournament championships that we've both experienced and uh, all the fond amenities that exist at now Regions Park uh, because we need RVs at, at our baseball Oh, it's not Regions right? anymore. It's not well, Regions it's not. anymore. Whoa. I think it's back to Hoover Met. I also don't know that I've, play, I've sat at a baseball stadium that's hotter than the Hoover Met on Memorial yeah. Day weekend. It Outside of North Jackson Youth Baseball. Awful. The, it's one of the hottest places in the entire world. I think it, it truly could be. And, and yeah, it, it was cool to kind of relive some of those moments. And you know what I remember the most, Davis, about kind of growing up, going back to your Space Jam uh, topic, uh, what that movie meant to me, was going back uh, to my days playing the Northside YMCA in Jackson, Mississippi, in our eight- and nine-year-old leagues. And we'd show up to practice. And, you know, kids kind of had their champion jersey or what have you. Um, it was always maybe Michael Jordan or a, an obscure other player in the NBA. It started popping up after 96, 97. The moms started buying all the kids the Toon Squad jerseys and the Monstars jerseys at times with the zero on the back. Like, what are we doing? That's when I was kind of like, okay, I'm, I guess I'm a different kind of – I'm the Michael Jordan of being an eight- to nine-year-old sports fan because I just can't be around these other kids because they're not on my level. It was uh, embarrassed for them. I, I don't know what their adulthood looks like, but I'm sure that – that uh, really didn't uh, set things off on the right path for them at that point. Well, I can say that, that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I, was, I can say that uh, speaking as someone who owned a, a Toon Squad jersey, I think things have turned out decent. <laughs> Look, I stand by my take. It, it is <laughs> one of the worst. And for a guy who loves sports marketing more than anyone, one of the worst takeaways from that. But I think what they made $400 million off that movie, like some absurd amount of money. I will tell you, I watched that movie two weeks ago. It does not hold up. It's it does not. It was exactly. It was a really bad movie. <laughs> really it was bad. A tough movie. watch then, in my opinion. But oh, um, I don't know. I thought it was incredible. But anyway, we digress. Yeah, it was it was good. But uh, overall, you're, you're kind of seeing again where Michael Jordan's going these last few episodes, and I think it's going to wrap up uh, and culminate into um, just one of the best ten part uh, documentaries we've ever seen. Um, I, I think so far it's been amazing. It, it reminds me of only the comparison I can think of is maybe that OJ doc that came out a few years ago as far as just like, wow, I cannot stop watching this. I don't want it to end. But um, it's just really cool that we got this insight about Jordan's career and he's really kind of recapped it for us in this way. And I think hopefully this is kind of uh, his own personal statement on you know, his greatness and the legacy he wants to leave behind to people from a different generation who didn't experience this in person. 
Yeah, and I don't want to belabor this because we're doing, but this is maybe the greatest sports documentary I've ever seen. And even we're not even doing it justice as we sit here and talk about it. I mean, there are no. things we have we haven't even touched on. You know, we've, we we have made a great point of talking about the music, and I've had actually our buddy Steve. Bengals fan Steve, who also pointed out to me the Bengals aren't as bad situation as I thought they were. But Steve sent me over the the Last Dance um, playlist on Spotify, so check mm-hmm. out that playlist. But you the music's been fantastic. Um, you know, we you know we can talk about we talked briefly about Jordan's relationships. We haven't even talked about we haven't broken down all the different final series that that have been that have been talked about here. I mean, there's been so many awesome things in it, like that we just haven't been able to touch on. And I you know. I think you're right. I think it will go down as, as the best sports documentary ever made. Has to be in the conversation just because of the topic and, of course, the way they cut it. And I think they've really done a good job, like you said, of just kind of telling the, the not only the Jordan story, but the entirety of what the NBA was at that point in time. And it kind of gives you a snapshot into just what the league was before him and where it became and what it became into. Uh, maybe we'll get more insight into the after effect of this, too, in some cases. But really just kind of get a sense of what that era of the Michael Jordan era was for the NBA. We did have some uh, other news come out. Uh, The NFL schedules were released, which is our new favorite tradition. It's something we didn't realize we needed, but especially in these trying times, it's been awesome to have something else to talk about besides the last dance. The NFL has tried another way to be in that um, sphere for us, and the schedules were released. What were your takeaways from uh, some of the, the different pieces that you saw coming out of it? I couldn't believe how excited I was to see <laughs> the release of schedules. Um, I think that just shows uh, that the Washington Post, I don't know if you read the article that said that coronavirus has taught us anything. We don't need more sports. Yeah, uh, I did. I, I have to read that. I, uh, only thing that I can figure out is that if the NFL schedules are any indication, I need all the sports because I am fired up to see just the way that these different teams announce things. Like that was a competition for me. I was like, well, who did the best? Like, I don't know. Um, you know, I did look at it just a slight critical eye, you know, the saints do open with Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Mm-hmm. And then they are the first game ever played in Las Vegas for against the LA or excuse me, the Las Vegas Raiders. So those are two cool things. But other than that, like the details of the, of the schedules don't even matter. I was just excited to see that someone is planning on having sports. No one else is telling me when sports is coming back other than maybe baseball might be back on July 4th, but football, I know football is supposed to start in September. I know we're not heated and woke, we're heated and loaded, but I do want to maybe bring this point up. I think it's interesting that they went ahead with this release, like it's almost a normal schedule release. And, you know, obviously there's a lot going on outside of this right now, but I thought that was an interesting move by the NFL. And frankly, one that I welcomed that they went ahead and had this schedule release, despite maybe not knowing exactly what's going to happen down the road. Yeah. I don't, you know, yeah, I don't care. Give me sports, give me the schedules. Like you're, I, I think we need this as a country, you know, like we just need somebody to pretend like things are fine just so we can like get through the day and enjoy what, the small things that we can enjoy. Thank you NFL for posting those schedules. Thank you individual teams for finding creative ways to do it. It brightened my day last week and I'm excited for football again. Yeah. I want to give a shout out to a few of the great videos. The Eagles did the whole like Netflix style piece. That was awesome. Really appreciated the Jaguars going with the cat route on this release. It really showed uh, just what they're all about there and reinforced the brand. Um, then a few other ones that stood out for me, just how many Cheers references were on these particular releases because of their <laughs> New England connection. I guess people thought the same. When they think Boston, they think of Cheers. And 
not to depart it or anything else. It's just cheers. Um, so that's mm-hmm. good to know. And yeah, I think um, overall it was just like good to see some sort of normalcy happen. And the NFL, uh, despite a lot of the controversy around that league, they they found ways to stay relevant and keep us entertained and do it in a, I think, relative, like tasteful and appropriate way at this point in time. Yeah, absolutely, man. The NFL, if the, if, if anyone knows how to dominate the sports calendar, it's the NFL. And the coronavirus is no exception. They are finding a way to stay relevant for us. Another thing about the NFL this week, and we don't have to go too far into this, but uh, I know you're excited about this. Dave Portnoy is going to be watching a Monday Night Football game with Roger Goodell because he won an auction for it. How the NFL allows Dave Portnoy to win an auction, to watch a game with Roger Goodell in his basement, is completely beyond me. The ultimate NFL troll is sitting here winning an auction so that he can bring a camera into Roger Goodell's basement and just listen to them talk. And Lord knows if they put pay, make that pay-per-view, I will watch it. I won't care what's happening in the football game. I will just watch the awkwardness, the sheer awkwardness of Roger Goodell having to sit next to Dave Portnoy. 50,000 people are watching a Twitch account of a guy from a podcast play NCAA football in 2014 from that company. So I feel like it's more than worth his time to pay the 250K to charity to make this happen. And I'd absolutely watch this content. It's going to be amazing. And hopefully I don't think this will happen. I hope it goes all the way through and we see this play out. It's a potential way for them to kind of, it's the olive branch essentially, hopefully to a lot of the millennial people of Gen Z who do watch the NFL and, and that crowd. Hopefully this is something that you can kind of relate to people more and, and laugh this whole entire like five year situation off. But we all know how this might play out. So we'll see. Oh, I goes. think it's going to be awful, but I do think that you're right. It, it's, it's an opportunity for Goodell to do something funny and be charming, seem like a human. I think so. Maybe I heard this on Barstool and if I just want to make sure I give it, give them credit for it but the, the most the funniest thing that could happen because you know dave portman was going to wear the bozo hat the bozo shirt with roger goodell's face on roger goodell just needs to wear a dave portnoy shirt with a with a clown nose on it too like just something like human because you know yeah and he tried that with the nfl draft there were moments where i was still kind of wondering is this guy truly a human being or he's it was a- softer it was softer than he usually but yeah. you're right it was it wasn't great we're, we're really excited to have uh, my buddy, my old roommate from Baton Rouge, uh, who now lives in New Orleans, RJ Mars, uh, another uh, Baton Rouge connection. We're not trying to be a Baton Rouge podcast, but we're not hating it either. It's just kind of where people are, and frankly, it's uh, a good place to talk sports. So we're going to pull in RJ, and we're going to talk about our top three personal favorite uniform combinations from the 90s in pro sports. <laughs> We are now welcoming in my buddy, my old roommate from Baton Rouge, now in Mid-City, New Orleans, R.J. Mars. How you doing, R.J.? Hey, Banks. Glad to be here. Doing okay. Making it through day by day, just like everybody else, I think. We are glad to have you on. Davis and I were trying to think of someone who would really be on top of this topic and the kind of level we needed to for this type of discussion. And you came up on our, our list, so uh, thank you for joining us. Today, we're going to actually be talking about a subject near and dear to all three of us, our favorite uniform combos in pro sports in the 1990s. As three kids from that era, children of the 90s, this is uh, definitely something we always appreciate and talk through individually with each other. And now I want to make sure that the rest of the world knows our final ranking so it can be on recorded audio for the world to hear. 
Um, yeah, this is a exact shows exactly why we didn't have a ton of friends in junior high banks yeah, because we'd really sit around and talk about about uniform piping and things. So I mean, I'm <laughs> I uh, it makes a lot of sense why I didn't have girlfriends while I was in high school. Well, um, thank you, RJ. RJ, just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and and what you're currently up to these days, especially given the quarantine. Well, I, I'm an attorney, a lawyer in New Orleans. Um, although I've been doing a little less practicing uh, day by day lately. Uh, my wife and I live with our daughter here in the city. Um, we have been all together now for a couple of months and it's been uh, you know, an interesting time, but I gotta tell you, it's been a wonderful time to watch her grow up. And I have to say, you, know, you guys, uh, I didn't have many girlfriends either, but I spent <laughs> most of my time watching uh, the half hour sports centers when I was growing up in yep. the morning and uh you know it took me a couple of years to finally realize that they were replays and i would just you know because I, I just i just loved them and now now i've replaced that con uh, consumption with with podcasts and i'm happy to be on this one with you guys yeah first yeah, of hopefully many well uh rj let's get right down to it like we said at the beginning this is our top personal top three favorite uniform combos of the 90s so rj if you want to kick it off give us your number three Number three, um, this one will be familiar to, I think, any listener here. It's the, the Anaheim Mighty Ducks. Mm. And the, uh, the reason is basically the NHL offered Disney a team. Disney bought the team and decided to name it after a movie they had just released. Uh, and I think that's a pretty incredible story. And it reminds us all of being a kid, watching these movies, um, particularly for me. And I, I hope you guys agree, D2. Um, yep. really stands head yeah. and shoulders above um, both of the other two Mighty Ducks. D1 and D3, I can't even really tell you what happened It there. shouldn't even count, no. And, and to uh, be clear, this is the one with the, the jersey with the duck goalie mask, right? 100%. The beak yeah, yeah. and everything, yeah. Yeah, because, well, I mean, if a duck's going to have a goalie mask, it's going to need to cover the beak. That would be the most vulnerable part of Absolutely. the duck. What yep. makes you worried, though, is the bottom of the beak. I mean, that's, its neck is not very well protected. If it took a, a, a putt to the bottom of the beak, that I don't even want to think about the, how uh, violent that would be. Yeah, I wonder if modern day they'd have more of like a that, that kind of early 2000s catcher mask look with like the spray-painted graffiti <laughs> neck cover. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, Where was the hand-raised guy in this conversation in the boardroom at Disney? Like, hey, by the way, I love the design, but we're kind of missing this certain element. <laughs> Unfortunately, I guess Gordon Bombay didn't think about that when he was. Yeah, who's protecting the duck's icing. neck? Oh gosh, uh, yeah. So I that's that's a great one. Uh, my number three is actually has had a had a recent resurgence. Is the Vancouver Grizzlies teal uniforms? Mm. Uh, I you know teal was a very uh, popular color in the '90s. I imagine we will hear more about teal during this countdown. But uh, and not just the teal, but it was the, the detail on that on the uniform is so interesting. I mean, they have all the, and the, the Canadians call them first nations here. We call them native Americans, but the, <laughs> but the, uh, the totem motif that's going on, on the, on the, uh, on the sleeves and on the, on the collar. I thought that was super cool. Plus just the Grizzlies logo that the Memphis kept for a little while when they moved with the, mm -hmm. the bears paw, uh, paw holding the ball. I always loved that. And plus just that big giant bear, like this, like 
oversized bear that they just shoved on the side of a, a pair of shorts were just, it was so gaudy, but it just worked. I don't know. Memphis, I mean, Memphis really stole something when they took the Grizzlies away from Vancouver because if Vancouver ever gets a team back, they should be called the Grizzlies. But, man, that jersey, Pantheon for me, top three. Big Country Reeves especially looked great in that uniform. That's what really popped it off a little bit for me. I love that pick. Very it goes really uniform. well with pasty, right? I mean, it's it like a great. It's a great contrast. It really goes just, well with a crew cut for, and a guy from Oklahoma. Absolutely. I always, I always thought that Big Country Reeves was only allowed to play for teams in Canada in the Northwest. <laughs> I just, I don't see why how he could play anywhere. a New York Nick. No way. Miami, no, no way. It's got to be the Grizzlies. You got to find somewhere that you have to live inside and it can never go outside because of the you know rain constantly because yeah. that's that's the only way your complexion ends up that color. You know, and not to spoil this, Davis, but um, you're you mentioned how a grizzly doesn't quite fit. You, you didn't say this directly, but a grizzly doesn't quite fit in Memphis as well as it does in Grand Vancouver. And I'm not going to spoil anything, but that may have something to do with one of my uniform choices coming up. Great. Well, can't the theme wait. is nothing made sense in this era. Whether this guy's first uniforms. time on the podcast, he's already teasing. You know, we're, yeah. This is this is good. Let's get this guy. We got Mike Greenberg on here. All of a sudden, it's amazing. Um, I'm going to move on to my number three. There are many options, as we we said. I'm going to give one that maybe doesn't come up a lot in the nostalgia ranks, uh, especially with this rebrand and redesign of their uniforms recently. I was kind of hoping I'd see this come back, but it's the Drew Bledsoe era New England Patriots blue top uniforms. And if y'all remember that, it had the, I believe it was, if I'm not mistaken, an Adidas brand. First of all, we have to make sure we, we name the company. It was an Adidas era with Patriot Man logos on the shoulder. Like Elvis Patriot is what they call it, I believe. It's the, it was the Flying Elvis. That's the Flying Elvis. With that. yeah. And it, it represented, you know, kind of like what was trying to become like a different brand for the Patriots. At the time, people did not consider the Patriots a great franchise probably the laughing stock of the leave outside of Tampa Bay, both ironically rebranded in that era. Um, but this uniform was so hideous. It was great. It screwed up what is hard to do, which is a red and a blue and like a silver combo. They made it ridiculous coming out of what was arguably one of the best uniform combos um, of the, I guess the seventies and eighties leading into that point in time. But um, I also appreciate This is underrated to me. They had this like striped, kind of pattern on the jersey itself mm-hmm. that no one else had. And it made no sense why they had that. But it was kind of, again, another nod to the 90s. Nothing had to make sense. It was just that and the shadow box numbers right on top of it. It was just uh, an atrocity that I firmly appreciated. And to me, that's my Patriots uniform combo. It's it's the one that lost to Green Bay and the Superdome uh, down in uh, New Orleans. All right, RJ, we're going to move on to our number two. What's your pick? Number two. So um, it's a specific, I don't know, colorway. No, that's a that's a that's a sneaker term. Apologies to that one. Uh, it's the Utah Jazz purple mountain motif. You know, we talked at the top of the show about how, or top top of this segment, about how I live in New Orleans, and I, there is no better fit for um, team mascot uh, and sport than uh, New Orleans Jazz basketball team, and. Uh, unfortunately, it was taken away. They were terrible. I don't have any issue with the team moving. But, um, you know, here we talk about all the time that we just have a, a one-game playoff, bring the Jazz back back to New Orleans. Uh, but this jersey in particular, it has a the, the mountains that – I don't even know what the range is that runs through Utah. Um, but it's 
Okay, it's the Rockies, the snow-capped Rockies and jazz in the front. It makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. And that's reason number one. Reason number two, and this is the last reason, is that when I see those jerseys, I think of what you guys probably talked about in the segment before this, Stockton and Malone playing Jordan in those finals. And it brings a lot, it brings kind of an entryway to the, the mid, mid to late 90s NBA for me, which is a really um, one of my favorite eras of sports, not only because of my age, because the storylines and the players are awesome. Yeah, nothing makes more sense than Purple Mountain Majesties of the Utah Jazz. Um, I mean, the fact that Utah at Salt Lake City has an NBA team to begin with is kind of hilarious. But the fact that the least white music I can think of is jazz or, you know, and it's just a bunch of white Mormon dudes out in Utah, like blows my mind. It is too funny. It's hilarious. Might as well throw some purple mountains on it. I, the, honestly, it's it's more it's more bizarre to me now whenever they wear the throwback New Orleans ones with like the like Mardi Gras colors. You know, like that blows my mind. But yeah, I, I think that, that's a good pick. I would also add to that. It wasn't just that the uniforms were what they were. It was who was wearing said uniforms. So it was the very hairy leg John Stockton. It was the Jeff Hornacek, the really pasty white guy. No offense to those guys. I, I certainly don't uh, have any difference of complexion with them. But it was who was wearing the outfit as much as the outfit itself that made it what they were. Don't forget about Greg Ostertag. If you want to talk about pale white dudes, oh, Greg Ostertag. Huge oversight on my part. I, I apologize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, well, you know, kind of reminiscent of the different approaches to the to the musical genre too. You've got a very strong, really like hard hitting jazz. You got Carl Malone in that jazz uniform coming at you, just really just aggressive, except for when it counts. And uh, and you know, Stockton's coming in there. You know, more of a paint by numbers approach. Ostertag doesn't belong there. I mean, it's just a it doesn't it does it doesn't fit and. Uh, but that flat top, that flat top certainly fits in, in central Utah. He fit in um, NBA courtside, Kobe Bryant in 64. I mean, he was a standout on that game, and, and that's what's most important. Uh, that's what that's <laughs> what really matters here. What, what was Ostertag on uh, on NBA Jam? Was he any good? I can't imagine he was. Was he on NBA Jam? Great question. I would like to he look had, into he that. Had, he had one, like, he had like a little bit of green for every, <laughs> for every category. Yeah. Where yeah, is that like t-shirt for homage? That's what I want. Yeah. There goes your tag NBA Jam shirt. Well, all right. My, my number two is the big Raptor Ooh. jersey from the Toronto Raptors. Keep it in mm-hmm. Canada. Keep it up north. Those, I mean, uh, to go back to just team naming wrongs, the only reason the Toronto Raptors are called the Toronto Raptors is because they came in, into existence within two years of Jurassic Park being a huge hit. And so the fact that we first have a base, a basketball team named after a dinosaur is pretty hysterical. I mean, we banks and I have been watching a whole lot of KBO baseball on ESPN during this, which is the Korean league baseball. They have the NC dinos. I almost think that like the Toronto dinos might've even been cooler. I I don't know. Raptors is just bizarre. Now that like, I don't want to get too into it, but like Raptors turns out they might be real small. Like we had the whole wrong idea about the size of these things and how ferocious they were. So uh, that alone, naming wrongs, maybe should not have ever been called the Raptors. But then you put this giant purple, purple dinosaur on a t-shirt, on a jersey that takes up half the jersey. And also, what is the dinosaur you think of when you think of a big purple dinosaur? Mm. Barney. So they had Barney on their jerseys. The 
so not only is it kind of hokey that they named the, the raptors, but then they put the hokiest, softest dinosaur that we know of in the 90s on their jerseys. I love it. I still love it. And they have, they have these like these like uh, jagged pinstripes running down it too, which were didn't make any sense. Love that. I mean, and I, I don't know. I'm, I'm all in on it. I'm all in on the 90s, just throwing giant animals or you know prehistoric creatures in this case, just on a jersey and rolling with it. It's almost like they quit, which I just love. It's like find me the craziest thing you can come up with and throw it on a jersey. So the origin of another uniform that's very famous we might talk about, the Charlotte Hornets. Um, is a guy named Alexander Julian, who is based here in North Carolina and designed what you see as the UNC Argyle as well. And it looks like basically an Alexander Julian designed, who designed that uniform for the Hornets, looked at the Raptors and also like combined that with like a, a Tribe Called Quest artwork cover of an album and said, how can we combine the two with these pinstripes and the color combination and everything you see here? I think it's a great pick, a, a high value pick as well. Um, you know, it's certainly one that you see relevant today. You'll see Vince Carter jerseys all around with the, the kids at Coachella and, and things like that. So I think it's uh, one of the best ones that encompasses the 90s in a good way. Yeah, and, and they had a really good rebrand too. Their second, you know, when they finally went to that weird, you know, scoop neck, or not scoop neck, but the V-neck. The post-Jordan Nike cut, yep. yeah. The, the I mean, fixed, I, the thick yeah, shoulder, really the thick wide shoulder NBA area. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the Lakers did it too. Well, and they both had like the the same template, which, you know, laziness in, in pro sports sometimes. But, you know, uh, obviously it worked. But the, the big Raptor, Raptors jersey was my favorite. Or my, I, my second thing. You guys, you, when you were in class in high school or elementary school and you would doodle on the side of, of whatever notebook you had and you're maybe drawing a design, let's say you were doing like a little box design and – you know, kind of an abstract and you knew like you got to a certain point, you're like, that looks good as it is, but maybe I'll add another layer. And then when you did, you're like, oh, that was one too many. It's just too complicated. I feel like this jersey is a real, I'm looking at a picture of it right now. I feel like it's a real kind of a embodiment of that where you have, not only do you have a Raptor in all detail, it's, it's got shoes on its feet with holes for its, for its talents. And then, and then it's, <laughs> and then you've got pinstripes and, and, and black and, and silver at, it's got all of the details. And if you lose three of these, I think it's an aesthetically better jersey, but far less great. Yes, 100%. Yeah. Great pick. Uh, moving this process along, my number two, kind of in that window, that, that teal, that purple that we talked about encompasses this era, the Detroit Pistons rebrand in the mid-'90s with Grant Hill. People always associate with them. Those teal uniforms – not always heralded, but for me personally, I loved it. Uh, we actually bought one of those as a kid. We saved our allowance money and bought a champion jersey. My brother and I did. It is an awesome look. I think, frankly, Tom has given it um, as we moved away from that era. We look back on it and say, you know what? It wasn't a terrible logo. It was a little cartoony. It was definitely different from the circle basketball logo that represented the Bad Boy Pistons. But I think it kind of has stood the test of time a little bit. And you could bring it back and, and maybe you might want to wear that again every now and then almost as a throwback item. What do you guys think? The chess piece I thought was, I remember thinking was super strange when I was <laughs> yes. a little kid to throw a chess yeah. piece on a jersey. But it kind of makes sense. It was the knight, which is a horse. Pistons, you know, create horsepower. I, I kind of get it. We're talking it's cars in Detroit. Uh, I don't know that Detroit would necessarily agree with you, Banks, because they 
immediately abandoned that and then yeah. went back to the basketball that they then won their next title with in 03 mm-hmm. or 04 rather with the uh with uh, Chauncey and those guys and the Wallace brothers but uh I mean I think it was a fun jersey and and that honestly is way I think of Grant Hill. I don't think of Grant Hill in any other jersey. I don't think of him in the Magic jersey or Suns or Clippers. It's it is that teal chess piece jersey with flames shooting out of the back of it. No one had something going on quite like Grant Hill with Fila shoes and the teal Pistons uniform. And then it all of a sudden just flatlined and it was very quick, but there was a moment. They had a little bit of a moment. Let's at least argue on that. They did. They had a moment. I think that's really the reason that, that it's one of the principal reason that it's on this list is because Grant Hill was that kind of cool next generation, going to be a star guy. He's in this, kind of kooky jersey with the numbering the numbering font I did, I've never <laughs> seen another font like this in my life I, I mean it's aren't they exhaust pipes the yes, well, the number rounded exhaust pipes yeah okay well they yeah and that explains why and I, I have to be honest I did not realize that the the horse was a uh, was a knight a chess piece knight until just now um so I learned something today I'm glad that we could bring you on the heated and loaded so we could talk about chess. <laughs> I've seen this jersey you know, that, that, thousands, thousands of times. Well, that's the one that can move together. in an L shape, you know? It goes yep. up three and over one. Okay, we're going to move on to the final pick, RJ. Very big decision. What did you decide on? It's the navy blue and gold Houston Astros jersey set mm. uh, from – 1996 to 2003. Uh, two you have reasons to for add me. the dates on that because there are some options. Yeah, so two reasons for me. Um, number one is uh, Bagwell, Jeff Bagwell. Not one of my favorite players, but in the top three of the swings that you would impersonate as a little leaguer, uh, that open stance, that wide, wide berth where you get that nice, nice squat in there, get those, get those haunches down, stare at the pitcher. Two eyes to two eyes. Uh, he was he was only topped by the the, the Griffey the Griffey stance with the bat waggle, and the Barry Bonds kind of quicker waggle that would go directly at the pitcher. Uh, second reason is Biggio. I mean Biggio and the pine tarred covered helmet was just a, an icon of my childhood. Uh, the Astros were not my favorite team in the '90s. That would have been the Braves, but the Braves had the same jersey as they do now. And I don't consider their jersey to be a 90s jersey. I think this Astros jersey with that open star and the kind of space looking font, sans serif looking like it's going to go off and <laughs> shoot off into the atmosphere. Just excellent. You know, this is probably an obvious pick. I'm a little bit guilty just even saying it out loud, but we have to bring it up while we're on the, the call here. The number one pick for me is Charlotte Hornets. It, it is the one I alluded to earlier, Alexander Julian, was commissioned to come up with the Hornets uniforms. Being based in Chapel Hill, he did the Argyle ones, and they said, hey, we need to take that same energy and put it into a uniform here with teal and incorporating some other colors and and, uh, some looks to it. They did a great job. He did specifically. It really encompasses the 90s, I think. It's not just the uniform itself. It is all the secondary gear and merchandise that come from that era, all based around the logo and the teal and, and everything with it. Uh, like starter jackets. Every kid had a starter jacket of that team. They had no connection to Charlotte whatsoever. Again, this is Charlotte, North Carolina in the early to mid-90s. It was 
a small market NBA team that took everyone by storm because they had Grandmama, they had Alonzo Mourning, they had Muggsy Bogues, and then some other role players like uh, Seth Curry, or excuse me, uh, Del Curry, and, and some other people along those lines. So um, I think it's what y'all alluded to. It's not only the uniform itself and what it represented, but the people who wore it. And all those things combined, I think, make this the uniform of the 90s. And this is why they also bring it back. It's the reason why people still associate with that team. It's the nostalgia of that particular era. And um, I think that's why it's my number one pick. It just makes too much sense. My number one were, uh, to keep the teal thing going, were the teal Seattle Mariners jerseys. Mm. Uh, Banks has on multiple occasions referred to this team as the team of the 90s. The Seattle Mariners are probably one of the most popular sports franchises in the world for five years, just stretching from like 1992 to 1997, 1998. Uh, and Griffey eventually left in 99, but and that's who it was because it's all because of Ken Griffey Jr. I'm wearing my Seattle Mariners hat in honor of, of our boy Griffey and those teal, beautiful jerseys. Uh, just incredible. I, there wasn't a lot to them, you know, it was just, it said Mariners had the, had the compass star kind of thing on it that uh, was just a great look. It was simple, but it just screamed like, this is cool. I don't know why we thought that Teal was so cool in the 90s, but it apparently was because all three of us have at some time mentioned the color Teal while describing things that we thought were incredible. Well, good. We, we ran through a lot today. I think some great selections. Thank you, everybody, for being on this. And RJ, thank you for carving out a few minutes tonight to talk through that. Uh, and this very important topic. Hey, uh, I will always take time out of my day to talk about anything in the 90s sports cultural lexicon. Anytime. Thanks again to RJ for stopping by on our podcast today. Really appreciate everyone still tuning in to the Heated and Loaded podcast. Please continue to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on SoundCloud. Uh, we would really appreciate a five-star review and any comments you could leave on there to help us just stay afloat in the podcast listing. We're looking forward to pumping more content out here in the next few weeks. In the meantime, y'all stay safe. <laughs> <laughs>